going back, it's been a couple of weeks now. We took a little, little pause for Easter Sunday to step into 1 Peter. Uh, going back to chapter 17, uh, you may recall that Jesus has just declared that a cross must come before the crown. And, and not just for Jesus, but too for his disciples. Going all the way back to chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus knows that, that there are days of distress and suffering that await his, his disciples, days when they will long for the revealing of the Son of Man. And so he, he follows his teaching on the coming of the kingdom at the end of chapter 17 with a parable meant to encourage persistent prayer and faithful endurance, come what may. As you pick up in verse 1, Luke tells us, and he told them, Jesus did, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? Nothing cryptic here like, like we've encountered at times in Luke's gospel account. What does he mean by this? What does he want for us? What is he talking about? No, the, the application is explicit with respect to the teaching to follow. No guesswork involved. Right out of the gate, Luke tells us the purpose of the parable to follow, the point of the story before the telling of the story itself. Namely, that Jesus' disciples are to be a people who pray without ceasing, to use the language of the Apostle Paul, and who don't lose heart. Verse 2, he said, Jesus did, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, that's honest, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. It's a really intriguing story. A story that is relatively straightforward. The story of an unrighteous judge with no fear of the Lord, no respect for those made in his image. A man who, though fictitious, consider this, would go on to find expression in the flesh in the person of Pontius Pilate. A man who made his decisions on the basis of whatever was most expedient, most convenient, though improper or immoral. A man who would soon order the crucifixion of Jesus, though having found, verse 22 of chapter 23, no guilt in Jesus deserving death. Coming back to this morning's passage, uh, Jesus tells the, the story of not only an unrighteous judge, but to a, a mistreated widow. Widows, as, as many of us know, were among the defenseless in Jewish society, like the orphan, the sojourner, and the poor having little to no social power, oftentimes one tragedy away from starvation, desperate for restorative justice when victimized in the legal sense, which is surely the case in, in the parable that Jesus tells, as you have a widow crying out for justice against her adversary so that her life crosses paths with this unrighteous judge. Ironically, a man with little to no concern for true justice. And we're told that, that this widowed woman, if she's nothing else, is persistent as she comes to the judge over and over and over and over again. Eventually, over time, Wearing him down. In fact, the, the phrase translated beat me down in verse 5, it's a boxing expression in the original Greek. 
carrying with it the imagery of striking a person under the eye. Used metaphorically here to describe this woman's persistency as she wears down the unrighteous judge like a boxer in the ring. And we're told that, that he eventually gives in, giving her justice against her adversary. I'm reminded of the, the story that Jesus told back in chapter 11, right after having brought the example of the Lord's prayer before his disciples, where we're told, uh, chapter 11, verses five through eight, and he, Jesus, said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and, and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The, the door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and, and give you anything. I tell you, Jesus says, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. With that particular story, Jesus tells of a man who finds himself banging on his neighbor's door at midnight, asking for help in time of need. May I please borrow a cup of sugar? Some things have gone down and I don't have what I need in the storehouse. Everyone's nestled all snug in their beds, the house locked up, so to speak. The man's neighbor reluctant to come to the door. And yet the man won't stop knocking in shameless persistence. That shameless persistence ultimately prompting his neighbor to respond. Coming back to this morning's passage, the persistent widow in chapter 18, she's a lot like the persistent neighbor back in chapter 11. The further we get into Luke's gospel account, you see these themes threading on repeat. Both of those examples being uh, how Jesus wants his disciples to approach God, to pray. And the Lord said, verse six, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, Jesus says, he will give justice to them speedily. The parable of the, the persistent widow, it's a, it's a how much more parable. It's a reasoning from the lesser to the greater. It's a story of contrast as God is nothing like the unrighteous judge. He's a God of righteousness and justice. A God who always speaks and acts in accordance with what is right. A righteous judge who never makes decisions based on expediency, but rather makes every decision in perfect alignment with his perfect character. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse four, says the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's the God that you just sang to. He's everything that the crooked judge is not. Infinitely and eternally upright and just, always on the side of what is right. A final court of appeal to whom you and I can go in prayer, trusting that perfect justice will win in the end. The perfect justice and righteousness of God, that alone enough to encourage us to pray without ceasing and to not lose heart, verse one. And yet Jesus goes even further with the encouragement declaring that not only is God nothing like the unrighteous judge, but God's people are nothing like the nameless widow. 
Right? We know that God cares for the, the widow. We see it throughout scripture. That's one of those themes that threads not just through Luke's gospel account, though it's surely there, but through the entirety of the Bible, which is why we have passages like Psalm 146, verses seven through nine. It's God who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. God cares for the widow, the nameless of society. How much more does he care for his elect? Verse 7. His chosen ones. You see what Jesus is saying? If a crooked judge can be persuaded to respond to a nameless widow's cries for justice, how much more will God, the perfect righteous judge of creation, answer the persistent cries of his people? Might not seem that way. If we look around at the suffering and injustice in this world, Wickedness, it's pervasive in this fallen, broken world. We talked about this a lot in our study of the book of Ecclesiastes, that even the place of justice, the courts of, of law, there lacks justice. Even in the place of righteousness, the houses of worship, there's crookedness. The very places where people should feel the safest are not always safe. Like the author of Ecclesiastes, many of us know the discouragement, perhaps even the frustration with God's delay in executing judgment and looking out upon the wickedness that pervades society. How long, O oh Lord, will you delay long over your people in giving them justice? And Jesus says, verse eight, no. I tell you, God will give justice to his people speedily. Remember, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Not only is God perfect in justice and abounding in love, but he's perfect in wisdom and abounding in mercy. Peter tells us, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God's delay of judgment is a grace. It's a mercy in giving wayward sinners time to turn to him in repentance. And yet, Jesus says, it won't always be so, as there is indeed a day of justice that awaits the one from whom, whose lips this very parable flows, he himself, the final judge, the once for all answer to the problem of wickedness that in Christ, every evil, every tragedy, every injustice will be brought into account. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Either Jesus will bear the punishment for our sins in his body on the tree or we will bear them for ourselves when we stand before God someday. No wickedness will survive his final court of law, the place of justice. No wickedness will enter his final house of worship, the place of righteousness. That in Christ, oh, this is such good news. In Christ, the safe places will truly be safe forever. On that day, in the perfect timing of God's infinite wisdom, when Jesus returns to set all things right. Nevertheless, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Faith in the broad sense, yes. The assurance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11. The conviction of things not seen. 
but more specifically in the context of the story that Jesus has just told, the evidence of faith in persistent prayer and faithful endurance. Jesus told this parable so that we would pray always and not lose heart, giving us all the motivation and encouragement that we could possibly need. That our God, he's a God of perfect justice who always speaks and acts in accordance with what is right. Our God is a God of abounding love who cares for us, not as society's nameless, but as his chosen ones. Our God is a God of infinite wisdom who rights the wrongs of this world in accordance with his perfect timing. Therefore, verse one, we ought always to pray and not lose heart. And we ought to do so until the day we breathe our last breath or the Son of Man returns. I know there are a lot of questions about prayer left off the table here. And I would encourage you to to sit with a good systematic theology that gets into the heart of some of those questions that you may have about prayer that we don't have time to to dive into and, and deeply expound this morning. But this is your God. And he's unchanging. Question is, do we interpret our circumstances through a different lens? Do we have it backwards? Are we looking at the scriptures and interpreting them and who God is through the lens of our circumstance? Or do we have it the other way around where we're taking the scriptures and the declaration of who God is and interpreting those circumstances through that right lens? This is who your God is, Jesus says. Therefore, don't lose heart. Pray without ceasing. Verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here Jesus tells a a second story. Here again presenting the, the issue that he's out to address before he even gets to the story itself. Namely, the danger of trusting in oneself and one's own righteousness. It's right there in front of us, treating others with contempt. Jesus has just taught on the the kingdom ethic of persistent prayer, now following that teaching with a second story that declares that in the words of one scholar, not all persistent prayers are created equal. He goes on in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, Jesus says, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Familiarity with these kind of stories can cloud our understanding as we're meant to see through the eyes of the original audience the Pharisee as the good guy and the tax collector as the thieving scoundrel. We've talked about on a a couple of occasions working through the book of Luke and Jesus's day, tax collectors, they were swindlers by reputation, subcontracted by the the Romans to uh, collect revenue so that anyone who wanted to be a tax collector would put in a bid for an area and the Romans would award the contract to the highest bidder. That tax collector would then collect from the people not only the amount of the bid, but a little bit more on the top to to bring some profit in for himself. And yet, sadly, many tax collectors would collect far more than was necessary to make a decent living, leaving people in burdensome financial situations. 
to add insult to injury, they were robbing not just anyone, but their own people, considered traitors, and acting as a representation of Roman oppression toward their Jewish kinsmen, considered by many Jews to be God's enemies, so that many in society wanted nothing to do with with tax collectors. They had to have their own little club with each other. In the words of one commentator, sinfully rich and socially ostracized. That's what it was to be a tax collector. In contrast, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were seen as models of virtue. Many of us, we, we know that. We get this. The word Pharisee itself meaning separatist. They were the extra super holy people, having established a code of morals and regulations that went far beyond the scriptures. Here Jesus tells of two men, both of whom went up to the temple to pray. For one, it would have been perfectly normal to see do such a thing, the Pharisee. Tax collector, on the other hand, that would have been a bit more shocking, to say the least. And we're told that the Pharisee gives thanks to God, grateful for a life lived in pious acts of religious devotion, unlike the many surrounding sinners from whom he had distinguished himself having leveraged his many spiritual disciplines as a means of self-justification. Think about this. It's not that he takes credit for, for the righteousness itself. He actually gives credit to God that he's lived in such a pious way. The problem is that he's trusting in his righteousness for justification before God. As Jesus says, having trusted in himself that he was righteous, though crediting the righteousness itself to God having given it to him. Not only proud, but prideful. As evidenced by the many inclusions in his prayer of the word I. I believe you see it five times in this this short prayer. Like the wealthy man with his bigger barns, chapter 12. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. Self-focused and delusional. In the words of one scholar in describing the Pharisee's prayer, it says, quote, after his initial nod to God, his was essentially a self-congratulatory monologue disguised as a prayer. His attitude showing him to be a sinner too in both his own pridefulness and the contempt with which he treats the tax collector. Love God and neighbor, the two commands on which all the law and the prophets depend, Matthew chapter 22. The Pharisee in the parable had his tithing down to the dollars and decimals, yet he managed to miss the law's heart-piercing demands by way of his insulated rules. And with that, not only a failure to to truly love God from the heart, but a failure to love his sin-grieving neighbor as he ought. That sin-grieving neighbor, meanwhile, in contrast, making a public proclamation of his own, as Jesus tells us that the tax collector is found shouting from the rooftop, just the same as the Pharisee, yet not of his virtuousness, but his sinfulness. Both men standing, you'll notice, at a distance from other people, One believing himself to be set apart in his goodness. The other believing himself to be set apart in his badness. The tax collector's prayer, more than simply a cry for mercy, is the word translated merciful, be merciful to me, more literally means be propitious. 
It's where we get that, that doctrine of propitiation, Jesus, our wrath-bearing Savior. It's a cry for a new relationship with the Lord, for God's just, holy, and good wrath to be turned away from the man. A cry to the perfect, righteous judge of creation to look upon him mercifully such that a light of reconcilement might shine where the wrath of God would otherwise be poured out. A man having come to the end of himself. I'm not sure why so many translations say, be merciful to me, a sinner. As there's a a definite article in front of the word sinner in the original Greek. So that it literally reads, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm not looking around at other people. I don't even see myself amidst a sea of sinners. I'm the sinner. I can only see myself having come to the end of myself in light of the holiness and perfect justice and righteousness of God. The appropriate response of of one who not only, unlike the Pharisee, isn't pridefully looking down on other people, but can't even bring himself to lift his eyes to heaven. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's words, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, where Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one trusting in himself that he was righteous treating others with contempt, the other having come to the end of himself, crying out in humble contrition, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, it's not shocking to us, verse 14, that Jesus would say this. Surely would have been shocking to his original audience. I tell you, this man The tax collector, the thieving scoundrel, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee left the temple confident in his righteousness, whereas the tax collector left the temple confident in both his unworthiness and God's mercy. Jesus declares it's the second of the two who went down to his house justified, the tax collector and not the Pharisee. As shocking as the parable of the Good Samaritan, chapter 10, where Jesus declared that it was neither the priest nor the Levite who was the hero of that now famous story, but rather a Samaritan man. It's the self-righteous Pharisee whose prayers go unheard, blinded by his own self-sufficiency and pride, while the sinful tax collector is justified before God in humble recognition of his desperate need for God's mercy and forgiveness. There's a poem by the 17th century English poet Richard Crashaw entitled, Two Went Up Into the Temple to Pray. And it goes like this. Two went to pray, or rather say, one went to brag, the other to pray. One stands up close and treads on high, where the other dares not send his eye. One nearer to God's altar trod, the other to the altar's God. Do you see the subtle distinction? Yet again, a sobering reminder that are, there are many who believe themselves to be on the inside who desperately need to be one to Jesus Christ. 
There are many in the church who have never truly come to the end of themselves. Who have never truly come face to face with the hopelessness of their sinful condition. Going back to the mission statement of Jesus in chapter 5. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the heart of what Jesus is saying here. Mercy, it's for the self-abandoning. Those desperate for cleansing, healing, and forgiveness. In the words of one commentator, the church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. In Jesus' parable, the Pharisee, he couldn't see the sickness in his own heart. Only in the hearts of everyone else around him. He would sit in a room like this this morning and think this sermon was for everyone else. Self-righteousness is simply another form of sin. Perhaps the most difficult obstacle to salvation, to true freedom and joy. Charles Spurgeon once said, Our imaginary goodness is more difficult to conquer than our actual sin. Man can sooner be cured of his sicknesses than be made to forgo his boasts of health. Human weakness is a small obstacle to salvation compared with human strength. There, he says, lies the work and the difficulty. Hence, it is a sign of grace to know one's need of grace. He who knows and feels that he is in darkness has some light on his soul. The gospel of the kingdom. It's not good news to those who perceive themselves to be rich in spirit. Even spiritually middle class. As John Stott once wrote, Jesus contradicted all human judgments and all nationalistic expectations of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich. The feeble, not the mighty. To little children humble enough to accept it, not to soldiers who boast that they can obtain it by their own prowess. In our Lord's own day, it was not the Pharisees who entered the kingdom who thought they were rich, so rich in merit that they thanked God for their attainments, nor the zealots who dreamed of establishing the kingdom by blood and sword, but rather, rather publicans and prostitutes, the rejects of human society who knew they were so poor they could offer nothing and achieve nothing. All they could do, he says, was to cry to God for mercy. And he heard their cry. I would ask, have you truly been brought to the end of yourself? So wrecked by your sin that all you could do was cry out to God for his mercy. What a, what a miracle it is when, when God brings prideful, self-sufficient, morally upright people to the end of themselves. It's that kind of wondrous miracle of God's sovereign grace for which we, in our own perceived goodness and success, are most desperate that we might believe on Jesus, that we might repent of our sins and trust in him, that we might know true healing and freedom, true peace and joy, what it is to not live like the Pharisee in the parable and the misery of that kind of life lived. Perhaps today, is the day of salvation. The day to stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your righteousness. 
the day to cry out like the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The day to repent of your sins, the day to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness that can only be found in him. And for we who profess to know and love and follow the teller of these stories, Jesus Christ, we guard against the kind of dangers of which Jesus warns us by never ceasing to acknowledge our desperate need for God's mercy. It's not a well we run to once and then abandon. No, we continually abandon ourselves and continually run to him in humble contrition. That's where true and lasting joy is found. According to Jesus, poor in spirit sinners, desperate for and having tasted true forgiveness in Jesus Christ who keep coming back to that well over and over and over again. Like the persistent widow. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The persistent widow and the penitent publican. It's not just a good exercise in alliteration. It teaches us something about the nature of God's kingdom and what it is to rightly come before heaven's king. Trust not in yourself, Jesus says, in your own righteousness. Treat others not with contempt, knowing that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Pray without ceasing, Jesus says, and don't lose heart. Keep fighting the good fight of faith, knowing that your God is a God of perfect justice, abounding love, and infinite wisdom who cares for you, not as society's nameless, but as his precious chosen one.